and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Kim Iverson joins me for the entire show remotely while Robbie is out sick. It's great to see you, Kim. <laughs> well, it's early, really, really early. <laughs> uh, so for those of you that don't know, I'm in LA. So when I when I get up to do the show to fill in for Robbie or something, you know, I, it's just, <laughs> it's early. <laughs> so, so You're a um, hero. Uh, well, here I am. So we do have a great show for you today. We're gonna—I'm gonna power through it. We're gonna—we've got some great content. We're gonna hear from Alentia Johnson and Emily Jashinsky on a new GOP super PAC pumping money into key House and Senate contests. Plus, we'll bring new updates on Epstein's suicide, the explosive Piers Morgan Trump trailer, and why Tulsi Gabbard is demanding Romney and Keith Olbermann retract statements accusing her of being a Russian asset. But first, Vermont Senator, budget chairman, and one of my former bosses, Bernie Sanders, may be mulling another run for president, if Biden doesn't run, that is. The Washington Post first reported the memo and several outlets, included, including The Hill, have confirmed that the document does exist. The memo said, quote, in the event of an open 2024 Democratic presidential primary, Senator Sanders has not ruled out another run for president. It also touted Bernie's popularity status and his support of the working class. Congressman Rokana tweeted out some of the some of uh, the Bernie's popularity data that was in the memo. According to YouGov, Bernie is the most popular elected official in the country, which the congressman attributed to Bernie's strong progressive agenda adding that he was proud to have co-chaired this campaign. Before the news broke yesterday, Bernie appeared in front of the budget committee and showed why he's the most favored politician among workers. When we talk about why the American people are angry, why among other things we're seeing a spurt in the growth of trade unionism in this country, it has a lot to do with the fact that CEOs in large corporations now make 350 times more than they are average workers. In addition to that, they receive stock options, golden parachutes, and a wide range of perks. Go to the CEOs, and meanwhile, working families are struggling to pay their bills, to feed their kids, to take a few weeks vacation, uh, and to save up for retirement. So what we are seeing now is more income and wealth inequality in this country than we have seen in a 100 years. And this is an issue that if nobody else wants to talk about, we will talk about in this committee. Yeah, I, I got to say, I understand why there's so much enthusiasm about this on the left. There has been a real void since Bernie dropped out in, in 2020. The popularity numbers are true. He's still among, if not the most popular uh, elected representative in this country. And that is because I think he's been so consistent for all of these years. As the conversation ping pongs back between social issues, there he is dutifully talking about the economic concerns that continue to plague this country. And I think especially in a moment like this, there are a lot of people who would welcome a respite from all of the fighting and a return to the kind of basic grassroots bread and butter issues that are concerning so many people. Yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, let's get real. I don't think Bernie's going to be running again because I do think that Joe Biden is going to be running again. Mm -hmm. And even if Joe Biden didn't run again, the Democratic Party is not selecting Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. And I think it's become abundantly clear to many of us that who they put their power behind is who ends up ultimately getting the nomination. It doesn't seem to be based on who's actually popular um, amongst the voters. They figure out a way to ensure that other voters come out and end up, uh, you know, changing the outcome. I mean, I, I just don't see Bernie Sanders being the nominee no matter what. Um, and I also think that a lot of people, you know, they would be have some of the same concerns about Bernie regarding age compared to Joe Biden. You know, it's like, oh, what's the I difference? Mean, they're basically but the Bernie same is, age. Yeah, that's they that's are the, the same age. I think all that's malarkey. Yeah. Well, right. And Bernie is way spunkier than Joe right. Biden. I mean, how a person ages is not based on the actual number. You know, it's, right. it's, there's other physiological things to that. Right. But, you know, one thing that also really stands out to me about this is, uh, I mean, why is it? That So when Trump was in office, the only thing we ever heard about, not just from Bernie, but from pretty much the entire Democratic base and politicians is racism, sexism, bigotry, you know, constantly going on about we got to fight all of this. 
And then Joe Biden gets into office. You've got a Democrat finally sitting there. And now you've got Bernie Sanders saying, well, I'm going to talk about this because no one else is. Why isn't the Democratic Party talking about this? Why are they focused on so many other things other than I mean, look, granted, there's other things that they have to be focused on, like uh, the not the war. I mean, that would be something I'd like them to put more focus on what Bernie's talking about. But instead, you know, they do definitely need to worry about the economy, um, but they just seem to focus on war and covid. And, you know, this is the time when Democrats are in power. They should be the ones stepping up, doing things from the workers. They claim that that's what they were running on. And yet here you've got Bernie sitting by himself, essentially saying the same things he's been sitting by himself saying this whole time for years. Right. Well, the reason that the Democratic Party isn't talking about those things is, of course, because we have two corporate parties that are equally invested in substantively maintaining the status quo. So totally. Bernie is able to criticize the system from the outside because he is an outsider. He is an independent senator from Vermont. And that's why I think a lot of people across the ideological spectrum were committed to him because it took courage to spend all of that time outside for 40 years. But I think the real scuttlebutt here in this story is that a lot of folks see this as a a planted story, something that was leaked by Fashakir, the um, who led the Bernie campaign in, in 2020. And this is meant to generate some interest, some buzz, but it's not really, to your point, meaningful insofar as Joe Biden is likely to run. And also the Democratic Party is never going to get behind Bernie Sanders. And there are people who are very skeptical of this story in the first place because they feel that even as much as they admire Bernie Sanders, they're frustrated that he hasn't been more vocal about some right. of the splits that have happened among the left since he dropped out of the race and are very concerned that he hasn't pushed for the kinds of reforms that would prevent future left candidates from being sidelined the way he was sidelined, like helping to develop an alternative third party. Right, absolutely. And the other thing, you know, Bernie, um, maybe it, it would be, I think, in his in his best interest to even start planting stories like this, to be mm -hmm. honest, and even potentially running uh, and, and actually doing it just to continue holding up to the values that he claims he holds, which is pushing for workers, pushing for the middle class. This would be the way to do it. Threaten Joe Biden, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, he did right? it to Barack Obama, and he got a lot of flack for it. But he threatened to run in 2012 um, over some social program that Barack Obama was canceling uh, or, or threatening to curb. I believe it was Social Security. Uh, and during the 2020 campaign, a lot of people tried to make this a, a racial issue. Oh, Bernie Sanders was going to, to primary our first black president. How dare he? But it was arguably, many people believe that it was his threat, his, his mere threat to run that caused Barack Obama to yeah. back off of his threat to cut some of these much needed and very popular social programs. So I completely agree with you there, Kim. Yeah, that's what he needs to do. Well, um, Bernie holding true to himself, he is expected to visit the Amazon warehouse in New York with labor leader Christian Smalls this weekend. So he is still standing with the workers. And, you know, I think Bernie Sanders could grab, could come back around. And if he wanted to run again, uh, and I don't think it's a bad idea, as I mentioned, I think he could grab a lot of those Trump voter base hmm. if he were to stick to, and I mean this, every politician derails into culture war of some sort, uh, racism, sexism, bigotry, you know, critical race theory, groomers, like whatever it is that they devolve into. If they just stay away from that, do not let Twitter run their campaigns. If they stuck with the issues of building back the middle class, putting money back in the pockets of people, uh, giving them health care, you know, helping people live their best lives where they can take a vacation once a year with their kids to the Grand Canyon or Times Square, Disneyland, you know, the things that people want, have a, a, a three car, you know, I mean, a three bedroom, two bath house or whatever, you know, <laughs> the people want the, they want the, the things that we grew up thinking we could have mm -hmm. if we worked even if we were working blue collar jobs. And that is just not happening anymore in this country. So Bernie sticks to that. I think he could actually grab quite a bit of those Trump voters, certainly a lot of Democrats. Right now, people are hungry for economic issues again, like they were in 2016. If he were to do that, he could change, even if he doesn't win, even if the Democrats don't give him the nomination, he could change the rhetoric, the landscape of the next election, what yeah, they're talking yeah. about. 
I think that's true, but I also would resist a framing that says mentioning the existence of racism, sexism, or bigotry that is really, really real in a lot of people's lives is not, um, is not mutually exclusive to really focusing and prioritizing a lot of the economic issues. When I spoke to Christian Smalls recently, you know, he was talking about the, the, the racial diversity at the Staten Island, Island plant. And a lot of people looked at him. Amazon issued that famous memo, right? That said he wasn't articulate. They didn't like the way he looked and presented himself. But his point was that because I am from this community, because people recognize me and I dress like someone who's from the area, I look like someone who's from the area, all of that is mingled up in people's ability to trust you and relate to you. And I think that's a really important part of this, this broader organizing effort. One other just brief point, when I talk to people who travel with Bernie on the 2016 campaign, one person in particular, Ben Jealous, former head of the NAACP, said he was really nervous when Bernie took this, a speech talking about Black Lives Matter in addition to all of these other issues into a white part of the country for the first time. And he cringed as the part of the speech about Black Lives Matter came up, thinking that the audience that had been cheering with Bernie was going to stop cheering with him. But because the speech touched on everybody's issues and included everybody's things, he was surpri pleasantly surprised to see that people really whooped and hollered and stood on their chairs and clapped for that part of the speech in particular. So I really do think key to solidarity is not cutting off the parts that you think are going to be distasteful to people, but making sure that everybody's issues are heard in a kind of equal way. Well, Brie, you make some really great points, but um, we got to move on. We're going to listen to your radar. I don't have a radar today, everybody, just so everybody knows. But Brianna, you've got a great radar. We are going to hear that next. Looking forward to it. All right, Brie, what's on your radar? <laughs> Well, Kim, yesterday evening, the CDC issued a statement indicating that it would appeal the Florida District Court decision to end mask mandates in public transportation settings. Now, obviously, given how politicized the conversation around masking has been since the start of the pandemic, the reaction to this news has largely been driven by ideology. Those who have supported mask mandates, largely liberals, are rejoicing. Those who have opposed masks, largely conservatives and independents, are livid. Even some who are supportive of mask mandates are warning that this could be a political blunder by the Biden administration because the ruling, they argue, gave Biden an out. The population is divided on mask mandates, so it could be a lose-lose for the party in power to act in either direction. Since the mandate was ended by the courts and not Biden, the administration arguably could have sidestepped responsibility for ending the mandates if it let the courts do its dirty work. But I'll leave that debate to others. What I'm interested in is explaining today why from a legal perspective, from a legal perspective, it makes sense for the administration to appeal the decision. However you feel about mask mandates, the decision simply made terrible law. What do I mean by that? Well, legal decisions are not just a one-off. They have what is called precedential effect. Decisions are binding or controlling on lower courts and have a persuasive effect on courts at the same level. That means that any bad reasoning that wrongly interprets the law could have the effect of changing the law for future litigants in a way that betrays the intent of the democratically elected legislatures who wrote said laws. Conservatives who are skittish about you know, activist judges for this reason should take note. Judge Catherine Mizell's opinion striking down the mandates has much broader implications than just COVID and masks. And even if you are antagonistic to mask mandates, you should be concerned that she decided the case on the basis that she did. I'm going to explain all this in more detail, but first let me make something clear about my own perspective on mask mandates. I am moved by arguments that mandates are not sufficiently narrowly tailored to achieve the desired effect of constraining the spread of COVID because they make no distinction between high quality masks and low quality masks, which have limited efficacy. I'm also skeptical of the inconsistencies of some of the guidance that have been promulgated for different types of spaces, restaurants versus stores, for instance. And I'm infuriated by the hypocrisy of legislatures who at time at times engage in mask moralism for working people while engaging in high risk behavior themselves. It's exactly that kind of behavior that has undermined the credibility of the CDC in the first place. However, none of this changes the fact that Mazel's legal decision is terrible. It's just terrible reasoning, it's terrible logic, and most importantly, it's terrible law. Now, as you might have heard, her opinion turns largely on the reading of the word sanitation. Here's why. This is a little wonky, but stick with me. Administrative agencies like the CDC are granted authority by Congress via statute, i.e. laws. In this case, the plaintiffs challenged whether the statutory authority of the CDC extended to mandating that people wear masks on public transport. In other words, does the CDC's authority extend that far? 
To answer that question, it's important to understand why the uh, what the statute granting the authority actually says. Okay, so the CDC claimed authority based on the Public Health Services Act. The act says that, quote, the CDC, with the approval of the Secretary of Health and Human Services, is authorized to make and enforce such regulations as in his judgment are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases from foreign countries into states or possessions, or from one state or possession to any other state or possession. For purposes of carrying out and enforcing such regulations, the CDC may provide for such inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be so infected or contaminated as to be sources of dangerous infection to human beings and other measures as in his judgment may be necessary. If you're thinking, that sounds pretty clear-cut, I'd agree with you. It says that the CDC is authorized to make regulations necessary to prevent the spread of communicable diseases between states, between states, sorry. Requiring masks does that. So where's the rub? The answer is there is none. The statute says the CDC can regulate where, quote, in his judgment, it may be necessary to, quote, prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases between states. Now, enter Judge Mazel. The problem with her isn't that she's young. People have made a lot of the fact that she's 35. It's not that she's a Trump appointee, and it's not that she's stupid. People who know her say that she is a very promising young, young jurist. She just happens in this case to be wrong. Despite the clarity of the statutory authority, Mazel uses principles of statutory construction to make a very convoluted case against taking the obvious meaning of this paragraph. Now, principles of statutory construction exist because sometimes statutes are unclear. Language is messy, and there are a lot of bad writers out there. Many of them are in the legislature. These rules are intended to provide some clarity and consistency for courts looking to divine what the people who drafted the laws really meant when they are ambiguous. However, there's no ambiguity here, and even if there were, Mazel completely bungles the applications of those principles of statutory interpretation. Judge Mazel notes that according to Supreme Court precedent, when there is a list of enumerated actions, in this case, the part of the statute that says the CDC can pro provide for such uh, inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles, that part, the action has to be, that is taken by the agency rather, has to fall within one of those listed items. Even if in this case, there's a broader statement that the administrative agency may use its judgment as necessary. Okay, so fair enough. The word sanitation seems to cover what's at issue here. Wearing a mask seems to obviously be a sanitation measure. How do we know? Well, another principle of statutory interpretation says, hey, when we don't know a plain meaning of the word, open a dictionary to get a common sense of what it is. Who would have thunk it? What will lawyers dream of next? So what does the dictionary say about the word sanitation? Well, Mazel admits in her opinion that one of the common dictionary definitions of the word sanitation refers to public health. She tucks it in a footnote rather than leaving it in the body of the opinion, but it's right there on page 13. Some dictionaries define sanitation as relating to the public health. However, for some reason, she defaults to two other definitions of the word, arguing using still other rules of statutory interpretation that are truly not necessary to understand what is a pretty straightforward text. She decides that sanitation refers to, quote, measures that clean something not ones that keep something clean. Measures that clean something, not ones that keep something clean. Okay, so bear with me. I'm not trying to make anyone uncomfortable here with this example, but I can think of one pretty obvious and common use of the word sanitary. One that comes up for about half the population every 28 days with the cycles of the moon. <laughs> yes, I'm talking about sanitary napkins. Last I checked, a sanitary napkin isn't used to clean a woman's downstairs, it's used to keep her underwear and clothes clean when she's menstruating. Just like a mask is used to prevent the spread of a virus, even if it's not intended to literally identify, isolate, or destroy the disease itself, as Mazel claims the statute requires it to. Even the statute's own text undermines Mazel's reading of it. It mentions pest control. Pest control, explicitly stated as within the authority of the CDC to regulate, doesn't identify, isolate, or destroy disease. It simply attacks the vector, limiting the spread of disease by limiting the pests that carry it. Rats, the rats or mosquitoes, for instance, aren't the disease. Black death or malaria are. Ian Milheiser, writing in Vox, puts it this way. Quote, suppose, for example, that many toilets installed in airplanes had a design defect that causes them to spew sewage into the cabin. 
Under the ordinary definition of the word sanitation, the CDC could order airlines to fix these toilets to prevent passengers from being exposed to sewage in the first place. But under Mizell's definition, the CDC would have to wait until passengers were wading through feces before it could order the airline to clean it up. That's the natural consequence of saying the law applies only to measures that clean something, not ones that keep something clean. It goes downhill from here, and I'm already running long, so I'll refer you to Milheiser's piece, or if you're a real pain pig like me, you can read the 59-page opinion. I paid for law school. I might as well use that degree. But I promise you, if you do, you'll find no sound legal justification for getting rid of the mask mandates. Now, this is not to say that the mask mandates in their current form are politically or even scientifically indicated. As I said, the mandates foolishly don't distinguish between masks of different quality, and they aren't well tailored to minimize the risk of spreading COVID. Many of the rules were clearly based on business decisions, like a desire to protect the restaurant industry and allow them to reopen. Fair enough, people can fight about the legitimacy of those kinds of choices, but they have nothing to do with the science of masking, just as this legal opinion has very little to do with the law. Now, I can appreciate why the Biden administration doesn't want this bad law on the books. It represents a politically motivated narrowing of the CDC's authority to act in response to public health emergencies like the one we're in. We might face another one any day. And the one we're in could escalate or change in ways that require the CDC to respond. And if its hands are tied, we could experience even more preventable deaths than have already occurred. Whether appealing this decision is worth the political cost of angering a significant portion of the, of the country, who knows? I'm no politico. To be clear, I'm just a lawyer standing in front of a court opinion, asking it to make sense. <laughs> make it make sense for me, Kim. <laughs> like this to me, it's not, I, I completely understand the arguments for and against masking, but I read this out of curiosity to see what the grounds actually were. And I don't see a lot of justification in saying that the, the argument that the CDC does not have the authority to do this holds. Well, that I actually think that's the most compelling aspect of the ruling. Uh, she actually gave three different reasons for the judgment, right? So she said sanitation, focusing on sanitation was one. And I, I think mm -hmm. the reason why the judge focused on san sanitation in particular was because that's what the parties litigated on. So they, I, I think that is what the CDC was arguing, uh, as well as the the the. So I, I don't. I think that that is why the focus was on sanitation versus like, for example, in that paragraph. It does say and other measures, but I think they had a cabinet into something, and so they just said, okay, uh, you know, it, it's way too broad to say. Yeah. So other one of the measures. rules of statutory interpretation is that if there's a list like that, you have the yeah. the the thing you're trying to do has to fit into one of the words in the in the right. list. So I think that right. that's so, completely fair, and that's why sanitation was at play. Sure. I'm sorry. Right. So so I do believe that they focused on sanitation for that particular reason. Um, but the, the, so I have to, I gotta, I gotta push back on the definition of sanitation. I don't think anyone believes that sanitation means public health. So I think that when they, in the dictionary, when it says sanitation, uh, is relating to public health, I think that means it's a cleaning, uh, relating to public health versus, for example, cleaning your computer's hard drive that is not related to public health. So therefore you're not sanitizing by definition of what sanitation is. Through, based on the actual dictionaries, uh, you know, actual, the definition. So sanitation has to be cleansing that is specifically in context of public health, not some other type of cleaning like a computer hard drive. So I think that is where maybe the public health aspect to sanitation comes in, but I still think sanitation means cleaning, uh, even well, if, yes, I understand like- never... oh, sorry, oh, can ahead. you cut out oh, for me ahead. a little bit there for a second? Well, I lost uh, you your know, audio. Like, but my under, you know, the, keep it in mind, this definition is within the Public Health Sanitation Act. The clear context of this statute is the public health, the, the public health act. So when we're talking about sanitation, the, there are obviously different meanings of the word, some of which are completely outside the con context we're talking about. So I agree, obviously, it doesn't make sense to something like a computer hard drive. And the case law gets into that, and the, they work through that in the, in the context of this brief. But when you open the clear the dictionary definition of the word sanitation, she's not arguing that it doesn't mean to clean. M Judge Mazel isn't arguing that the, the term sanitation doesn't apply to things that the CDC can do. To the contrary, she's saying the CDC should apply to sanitation. What she's doing is right. narrow 
narrowing the definition of the word sanitation such that it doesn't it only require it only covers cleaning things up after they get dirty as opposed to doing things to prevent something to become unsanitary, which I think bulks everybody's understanding of what various sanitary products, which to, to my point, like a sanitary napkin, are meant to do. Or lying down, let's say, um, a, a sanitary tarp before conducting a surgery, or any other kind of um, provision that you would take to prevent disease from spreading before the fact. Well, the CDC has not only uh, jurisdiction over sanitation measures, I suppose, but also, for example, to prevent contamination. So I think in certain circumstances, they're able to make recommendations or even rule, you know, or, or put out, I don't know what you want to call it when they, like, mandates, I suppose. Uh, they can mandate certain things happen based on other things other than sanitation. So fumigation, uh, preventing control. contamination. Right. So there, there's, a, there's a broad scope of what the CDC can make mandates, uh, you know, regarding not just sanitation, but in particular, I think that the parties litigated on sanitation. So she had to specifically focus on what the parties litigated, not the scope of what the CDC can or cannot do. So specifically for sanitation, I think sanitation means cleaning. And I think most of us believe that. Now, what a sanitary pad is called, you know, napkin, that's just marketing. I mean, I don't think that the CDC is necessarily claiming, you know, I don't know if they're the ones that that gave the sanitary napkin its name. You know, that's I, I guess, you know, any marketing company or any company could call whatever they want sanitary anything, but it doesn't. So, I, so I don't know if I would use that particular argument, but I would certainly say that the CDC has a, a broad range that they could regulate, you know, a broad scope, not just sanitation. Uh, but that is what the parties litigated. So that is what she was stuck with. But the ruling had way more to do than just sanitation. You know, she also talked about the, uh, you know, the, uh, what was it, the notice and comment section, you know, the public didn't get a chance to actually comment on this. How long can an emergency last mm -hmm. without turning to the public? But then lastly, I think that her argument or, or her judgment or ruling um, really focused a lot on the merits of the case. This was a substantive, a substantive ruling in that she was really looking at the merits of the CDC's mandate and saying they just didn't prove their case. Um, you know, they they didn't actually put forward enough evidence and particularly they didn't put forward enough evidence to explain the exceptions, like why a two year old doesn't have to wear like How is a two year old less likely to spread the virus or catch the virus compared to somebody else? Or why can you take it off when you're eating and drinking the inconsistencies? were yeah. the biggest, I think, issue. And as I mentioned, I think those a lot of those inconsistencies are fair, but the the question of whether or not Biden should, the Biden administration should be pursuing an appeal is, I think, related to the fact that bad law is made in constraining the CDC's authority. Yes, it has to turn on sanitation. Yes, the litigants, the plaintiff, was arguing sanitation because they have to, but the, the law says you define sanitation by the common dictionary definition. That's what the statutory, that's what the rules of statutory interpretation says. And she goes out of her way to ignore what's right there in the dictionary, right here on page 13, that says sanitation is about not just cleaning, but keeping things clean yeah. as well. And that's, that's something that I think that people should know. And that's why we went through this today. I appreciate you wor working through the wonkiness with me today, Kim. <laughs> there's other agencies, though. You know, there's other agencies that can regulate this type. I think like the sanitation with the toilets. I don't think the CDC does that. I think that's actually a different or a different department but or agency. But, you know, so maybe there's other ways, you know, if Biden really wants to go for it. But I, I agree with you from the beginning of your radar that uh, this would be politically, you know, I don't know what they're thinking, if this is a good idea or not to pursue, yeah. because politically it could be, you know, just I guess Biden really loves low polling numbers. I don't know. You know, yeah. we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. All right. Yeah. Well, well I don't have rising. a radar today. Yes, I don't have a radar today, but uh, because I had to wake up too early, so I couldn't stay up all night writing and researching, doing all the wonderful work that Bree just did. So uh, we have more rising instead coming up next. Former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard told Tucker Carlson last night that she has sent cease and desist letters to commentator Keith Olbermann and Senator Mitt Romney demanding that they retract their statement accusing Gabbard of treason. Let's watch. We've sent out these cease and desist letters to both Senator Romney as well as Keith Olbermann. And frankly, Tucker, it's in the hopes that they will recognize it's giving them the opportunity to tell the American people, you know what? 
On second thought, we understand how serious this crime of treason is. We'll apologize and we'll make sure that this, um, this doesn't happen again because if we love our country, we care about our democracy, we care about free speech, the last thing that anyone with a platform should want to do is to create this chilling effect where people are afraid to express their views, whether they are mainstream or not, whether they are in line with those in power in Washington or not. This is America and we all need to stand up and protect this speech because today it's me, tomorrow it could be you. Well, back in March, Romney accused Gabbard of, quote, parroting Russia propaganda and spreading treasonous lies after she called for the shutdown of U.S.-funded biolabs in Ukraine. Around the same time, Keith Olbermann called Gabbard and Tucker Carlson Russian assets and said they should be arrested and tried in a military tribunal for their crimes. So, first of all, look, Keith Olbermann is not a serious person, so I don't know why she would even <laughs> take the time to send him a cease and desist or even mention his name on Tucker Carlson's show. He's on Twitter. He's a total troll. The guy comes after me all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, should have just ignored him. Secondly... I mean, though I understand and I'm very sympathetic to being called a Putin puppet or a Russian asset. I know you've been called that, Brie. I've been called that. I, I, I'm not comfortable with what Gabbard is doing. I think it's look, free speech is free speech in the country. If you want to say if you want to call somebody names, I suppose you're allowed to do that. So I, I don't like and Now, I haven't seen specifically what she's talking about. I haven't read the cease and desist letter, so I don't know what her attorneys are arguing. Right. But from the surface of it. If somebody calls me a Russian asset, a Putin puppet, a traitor to the country, let them. That is free speech in America, whether I like it or not. I don't really want to chill speech in any way, especially criticism. So I'm not in line with her on this. That's... Uh I mean, look, whatever you think about what she should be doing, there's free speech, but we also have libel and slander laws, and she's allowed sure. to, to make her case that that's what's happened here. You know, a defense against libel and slander is the truth. And I think the argument here is that she was bringing up um, the existence of these uh, uh, bio labs, not making an argument that the America is creating, is helping in the creation of bioweapons, which is the... Um, kind of conspiracy theory that she's being accused of participating in. So she, I think, is trying to tease out that distinction and make it clear that she is not doing that, which is what Overman and them have said, and that's why they're claiming that she's a Putin's puppet. Now, I also think there are additional sensitivities here for her because she is um, a veteran and she continues to serve in, 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 a, in the military. And I think that she potentially takes these kind of insults being called treasonous really seriously, given that she, unlike a lot of the people who are throwing this accusation at her, has taken an oath to defend the country and has done so. I remember when this happened in the context of the Bernie campaign, Bernie issued a statement saying that it was widely inappropriate to accuse a veteran like Tulsi of being treasonous, especially when right. you can't prove it's true. So while you or I might not decide to litigate over this, we might be able to take our slings and arrows on Twitter. I can appreciate why someone, especially maybe someone who's posturing for a certain kind of political office in the future, might be attempting to clear the record. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the emotion behind it. I understand that it doesn't feel good to be called a Putin <laughs> puppet or a Russian asset or a traitor to the country. And I do think it's way more problematic for her, for Mitt Romney to be making these claims rather than Keith Olbermann. And like I said, he's of right. no consequence. But Mitt Romney's a sitting senator. So, you know, having a sitting senator call you a traitor or a traitor or treasonous to the country um, is much more, you know, he's much more high profile. He has a platform, obviously. But that, I mean, you, you're, you should be allowed to point to, you know, if I get elected to Congress, if you get elected to Congress, I should be allowed, we both should be allowed to point to Nancy Pelosi and, and say, oh, she's, you know, bought off and say all kinds of things that maybe she doesn't like and make, maybe doesn't make her feel good. But we're allowed to do it. Um, and so I, I think where it becomes much more of maybe something where she could litigate and send a cease and desist and it becomes a real problem is if I, I think there's more gray room when, for example, when Hillary Clinton said it because she had much higher security clearance. So yeah. when she says something, maybe you could say she's in a position of power and knowledge that other people are not in. And because of that, when she makes a claim, people have a tendency to take her opinion above other people's because of the knowledge that she has the highest level of security clearance. So that might be a, a case I think you could make, but just getting, I mean, Tulsi is, she's been called many, many names by many, many people. We can't go after all of them, but not only that, I do worry what it does on the flip side when you want to call somebody a name 
you know, that they're not happy with? Are we just going to go around and suing everybody or sending cease and desist letters to everybody? You know, I mean, I get it. It's, you know. For the record, I would love it if Nancy Pelosi wanted to uh, file legal charges against me for some very truthful thing I've said about her. Because look what just happened. I don't know if you've been following this case between Omarosa and Donald Trump. He sued her over statements that she made in her book that he said were untrue. She won the lawsuit and just won a significant chunk of money as a consequence. So to your point, Kim, like people are really, you know, taking their bank accounts in their own hands when they decide to sue over these kinds of statements, because so often it's difficult to prove that they aren't, in fact, true. Well, and not only that, you have to you have to prove that harm. So they were trying to harm you, not just trying to hurt mm. your feelings. Mm-hmm. But there's like a lot of layers, right? You know, because I think I think any of us in the public spotlight have thought about a time or two. You know, oh, maybe I should go after this person that mm. you know just wrote something terrible about me. And I mean, I've had articles written that are slander that feel to me libelous or slanderous, right? You know what? But you know, it's such a difficult thing to have to go through in court to prove it. But, uh, you know, a lot of times when they send these cease and desist, they're just meant to try to scare you, to try to get you to right. stop so that you don't want to go into a lawsuit because it's costly. Everybody loses in a lawsuit except for the lawyers. Except for the lawyers. So, <laughs> they make all the money. <laughs> Nobody else does. Everybody else loses. But, you know, I, I get it. I, I feel for her. I, you know, I, I don't agree with these smears against her at all. You know, I think this is we have just devolved in American discourse. And that is a yeah. real shame. That culture needs to shift. I don't know if suing each other is the way to get out of that culture, but certainly the culture needs to change. Yeah, most certainly. Well, our rising panel joins us right after this. With just seven months to go, the battle for the 2022 midterms is well underway, and so is the price tag. A powerful Republican group with deep pockets is pouring eight figures into a midterm ad blitz. The right-leaning nonprofit, the Common Sense Leadership Fund, launched a super PAC 1854 spending where it plans to dole out over $10 million in the 2022 cycle, according to Axios. Republicans and Democrats are throwing big money at this year's contest. Here to discuss how the 2022 cycle is expected to break records in terms of funding are panelists Alencia Johnson, Chief Impact Officer at 1063 West Broad, and Emily Jashinsky, Cultural Editor at The Federalist. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. So um, let's start off with you, Emily, on this one. Uh, I mean, what kind of impact do you think all of this money is going to have on the midterms? Well, yeah, and I think the money is going to particular races, of course, where Republicans feel Democrats are the most vulnerable. Are the most vulnerable, and so obviously, when you have a president with the approval rating this low, when you have an economy like this, um, and you have the Democrats in control of Congress, it's you know a good cycle. Historically, that has meant good things for Republicans, and they definitely feel the wind is at their back. I mean, if you're talking to Republicans, 100%, they feel the wind is at their back. They feel like this could actually be um, historic, even not just in the House, but even in the Senate. Um, 2022 and also even to 2024. Uh, But there are a lot of races in particular where Democrats are vulnerable in 2022 in rural areas. Um, And that is what has Republicans particularly excited because they're very much increasingly convinced that Democrats cannot pitch rural voters on their message, um, A, in this economy, and then B, in this cultural climate. So the money is going to those races, I suspect. Um, And and that could be really bad news for Democrats. Alencia, how are Democrats responding to this? Are their fundraising numbers keeping up with the uh, exigency they're facing this fall? I know that some folks on the left have expressed concern that after a year of what many on the left feel are disappointments, candidates, even progressive candidates that in yesteryear would have gotten a lot of attention and small dollar donation contributions are finding it difficult to get people willing to give them money. You know, it is frustrating when we think about uh, the promises that were made to Democrats and how slow some of those things have been achieved. And, you know, to your point, um, a lot of people are trying to figure out, do my dollars, is my $20, my $30, my $5 contribution, is it going to matter in this race, given that one, it will be the highest um, excuse me, the, the, one of the most expensive midterms that we've ever seen. One thing I do want to make clear, yes, all of this money is going into the super PAC. There are a lot of super PACs out here raising a lot of money and, and throwing money to challenge opponents from uh, opponents to uh, to Democrats. 
The reality is, though, the Democratic Senate Committee, as well as the Congressional Committee, actually are outspending the Republican, uh, out fundraising the Republican committees. Now, granted, mm. the RNC is outraising the DNC, but when we look at the Congressional Committees and the Senate Committees, the Democrats do have an edge there. And so there is some support for the candidates and what is happening in the Senate races and the Congressional races. Now, coupling that with what is happening in Congress and legislatively, we need to build on this momentum and build on some of the promises that have been kept and push for some more promises to be to be made and delivered upon so that people will feel like they can contribute. We're seven months away. It can still go anyway. It's going to be a tight race. But we should see this report in Axios as uh, an indicator that Republicans are fired up and they do see an opportunity here. And so Democrats have to uh, outraise, continue to raise um, and make sure that we are savvy in this midterms. Alencia, does that mean that there, there is a feeling, like many progressives hope, that some of the promises that Joe Biden made during his campaign are going to be trotted out and dangled as inducement to, to donate and then to later vote? Are we going to finally get student debt cancellation? Are we, are we going to get marijuana legalization? Are we going to get some of these big ticket, very popular items that can be done by executive order as a way to, to boost fundraising here? I mean, I had those questions as well as are we going to get, um, you know, some some uh, protections around our voting rights, right? Uh, are mm. we going to get some of the promises around criminal justice reform? Listen, I think two things can be true at the same time that Joe Biden is doing, President Biden is doing as much as he can around uh, the economy. And he has a long way to go on some of these key pieces of legislation that uh, so many Democrats in the presidential primary fought for, that Senate Democrats are talking about, that congressional Democrats are talking about. I mean, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren wrote an op-ed earlier this week that talked about the, th the promises that we need to deliver on in order to give people something to vote on. And so I think the combination with some of the feedback and the polling numbers and unfortunately some of this strategic and strong investment from Republicans might push uh, the administration in the right direction to make sure that some of these promises are made that will galvanize young voters, voters of color and voters who feel as though sometimes their voices uh, are not heard. You know, Emily, I'm curious if, uh, you know, on the flip side, on the Republican side, knowing that Democrats really do need to ramp up their, uh, I, I guess, their platform on the things that they will do for people, with Republicans, are Republicans just going to be saying, do you think, uh, uh, well, we're just not Democrats. Look at how bad things are. So vote for us because we're not them. Or do you think there's actually going to be some campaigning on, on, on some of these things that are going to actually improve people's lives? Yeah, so that's sort of the battle that's happening, especially in the Senate right now between Senator Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell. Um, and, you know, we've seen it like a Mike Pence, for instance, put out a an agenda. Rick Scott put out an agenda. Um, and there's this idea that Mitch McConnell thinks Republicans should just sort of run on, um, you know, obstructing Democratic priorities and sort of maintaining a kind of sense of normalcy or maybe a status quo or returning to a sense of normalcy or status quo. Um, and a lot of Republicans say that's that's just not good enough. Um, and so, of course, it depends on the race. If you're Ron Johnson, you're going to run very differently uh, from people in, in other states. You know, if you're uh, on the East Coast, you're going to run very differently than somebody on the West Coast, um, the South, the Midwest. It, it totally depends on the, on the race, of course. Um, but that is actually a battle happening in the Republican Party and, and not just about this cycle, but about in general, sort of looking back on previous decades and saying, you know, is the is are we running on tax cuts? Is that what this is? You know, you get Republican majorities and we're just running on tax cuts and judges. Um, so, Kim, you're actually hitting on one of the, the biggest battles that I hear talked about um, among sort of conservatives in, in D.C. all of the time. Hmm. And Emily, I'm curious, there is such a robust conversation happening on the broad left about whether or not these super PACs and politicians who are taking these big dollar donations are credible, if people should trust them, that an understanding that this is a, a, a key flaw in our democracy. And there used to be a very robust bipartisan conversation happening about campaign finance reform back in the 2008 cycle, I remember. Uh, and it, it, it imperils some candidates on the left from raising as much money because they do have to rely on small dollar donations and do have to hope that they can continue to demonstrate their ability to actually deliver for the people to keep getting those donations, which has not been happening. I'm curious to what extent, if at all, 
taking money from large super PACs, taking big dollar donations affects voters on the Republican side. Is there any downside for Republican candidates to be the beneficiary of some of the corporate money that's flowing in? You know, and, and that's a great question. And again, I think it does depend on the district. You know, if you're running in a suburban district versus a rural district, I think that makes a difference versus an urban district. I think that makes a difference. Um, I wish that we're way more stigmatized um, on the Republican side than it is. And I, I actually did feel like we were moving in that direction. One of the reasons that a lot of people like Donald Trump is because they had the sense mm -hmm. that he couldn't be bought. Right. That like it doesn't matter if you're some rich person throwing money at him. He has enough money. And that's sort of the perception voters had that he, he just couldn't be bought. Um, and so he also did really well with small dollar donations. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the party was sort of moving in that direction. So uh, it remains to be seen. I haven't seen this actually surprisingly popping up in many primaries, um, which you'd think maybe it would. Uh, there's it, it's there's not enough conversation about it. But I do think, you know, it should be more stigma than it is. And it is surprisingly not as stigmatized as it should be after the sort of Trump presidency. Mm. Well, thank you both for joining us, Emily and Alencia. Thank, thank you. you. And we will have more rising after this. What we're about to show you isn't a new Borat movie. It's much worse. Piers Morgan teased his new show, Piers Morgan Uncensored, with a clip of him going head to head with former President Trump in a heated interview. Let's watch. Hey, Piers, I'm ready. A former president in denial. I'll be completely straight with you to your face. I think I'm a very honest man, much more honest than you, actually. Really? Yeah. It was a free and fair match. You lost. Only a fool would think You that. think I'm a fool? I do now, yeah. With respect. Excuse me. Okay, with respect. The legislature. the hard evidence. Excuse me. The most explosive interview of the year. I don't think you're real. This I really is just I'm not like very dishonest. Let's finish up the interview. Morgan versus Turn Trump. Turn the camera off. Very dishonest. Oh, look at that Trump storming away. Very dishonest. Turn the camera off. But it's actually being reported that Trump's team sent audio to NBC who say the recording did not end with Trump storming off the set, as the clip suggests, but ended with the two men thanking each other and even laughing. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, if this uh, is all the things theater, making me laugh, it's working, right? yeah. <laughs> if this is. is it, it is doing the, it's doing the job. I'm waiting with bated breath to see the full interview. <laughs> oh, gosh. And that's exactly what Trump and Piers Morgan want from us. And you know that that must have been staged, right? Him having that, oh, turn the camera off. You know, he's probably joking when he said that because we couldn't see his face. Mm. So it probably was him just saying it like, oh, yeah, you want me to storm off? Oh, yeah, like, turn the camera off. We're done. Very dishonest. You know, who knows? Who but knows? we know that they're both ratings. Like, I don't even know if I can say the word rating whores, right? They <laughs> <laughs> they do. I mean, Donald Trump is nothing if not a showman. And even without this kind of state, potentially staged theatrics, he, he gives he gives good content. There's something unscripted about the man that makes the whole country, the whole world unable to turn away. And now that he has which been one? banned. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> which one? Pierce Morgan <laughs> or Trump? Donald Who are you Trump. talking Pierce, about? <laughs> Donald Trump, I don't know that Pierce Morgan necessarily has that level of charisma or media savvy. But look, this is this is how the man became president in the first instance. And now that he's been kind of, you know, shunned from a lot of the, you know, the major platforms, I think there was even more interest in figuring out what he thinks about all of the things that have been happening in the last year or so. You know, it, it, and I, so I looked this up. I wanted to find out, you know, are Piers Morgan and Trump, uh, are they on good terms? What was Piers Morgan? Because mm. he's a conservative. He's with the, I think, uh, the Tory party. Isn't that the conservative party in, mm. in the UK? So he, uh, I wanted to find out, are they friends or not? And apparently, you know, it's really mixed. Some of the reports from like 2016, it says Piers Morgan hates Trump. It says, Piers, for this is from the Daily Beast in 2016, Piers Morgan, Trump's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad. Sounds like he sounds like Trump when he says that. <laughs> but then in 2017, British GQ, for example, uh, reports only about a year later, Piers Morgan genuinely likes Donald Trump. So mm -hmm. which is it with these two? I mean, I would think that they must be on somewhat good terms for Trump to sit down for an interview. But then again, Trump will almost sit down with an interview with anybody at this point just to get some press. Right. Also, he wouldn't be the first person to turn the corner on Trump after Trump was critical of them or insulting to them. We all remember the whole Ted Cruz and his wife 
uh, fiasco. Uh, you know, oh a lot of people gosh. ended up kissing up to Trump, uh, regardless of how they might have felt about him in the beginning. But, well, this interview for Talk TV, a subsidiary of Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, almost didn't happen. Ahead of the interview, Morgan's producers reportedly heard that someone at an opposing network sent Trump a list of all the nasty things oh. Morgan has said about Trump over the last couple years in an attempt to derail the interview. And when Morgan tried to smooth things over with Trump in person, the former president said, quote, what the F is this? I thought we were friends. This is so disloyal and all I've done for you. Why would you say this about me? But ended up agreeing to the interview anyway. <laughs> I mean, look, Pierce Morgan is like Donald Trump light. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, they're almost the exact same person. <laughs> so Trump, I'm sure, read all of it and was like, what the F is this? And then eventually just got over it and was like, oh, OK, well, I'm sure Pierce Morgan rattled off all the crap Trump said about him, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a list of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Um, that's, but that's the thing about a sensitive ego. They can be kind of so easily sensitive. provoked, but also pretty easily um, paved over with a few uh, compliments and niceties. So. Yeah. He's like, oh, Trump, you know, I didn't mean it, buddy. I just, you know, needed to get the ratings. You know all about that, right? I yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I need to look great. The, you've obviously been getting some sun down there in Mar-a-Lago. Mar oh, <laughs> So yeah. Funny. So, I, yeah, I guess we'll have to watch this interview and see what happens. I, you know, it's like and I, I hate the fact that we have to watch it now, but we have to. <laughs> we, we have to. Like, we, we have, have to, to. I don't know what everybody else's excuse is, but this is a professional obligation on our part. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we can at least make that excuse. So we feel better about it when we're tuning in and watching it. Guilty. <laughs> totally guilty. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have more rising after this. The warden in charge of the federal jail where pedophile Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, quote unquote, quietly retired from the Bureau of Prisons in February. Lamine Ndaye oversaw the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan when the disgraced financier died. Epstein was jailed in 2019 on charges of sex trafficking minors. He allegedly hung himself while in prison, sparking a federal probe into how Epstein really died. And Dye's transfer to any other prison, let alone retire, was supposed to be delayed by the DOJ until it wrapped up its investigation. Interesting. So this is the warden. And, you know, obviously there were a lot of just so happened to be that this camera wasn't working and this guard fell asleep and this, you know, all of these just so happened. And then it just was in that very moment Epstein knew to hang himself, which is why so many of us don't quite believe the story yeah. um, that is the official story that he killed himself. So this warden, um, it, it's kind of it's really interesting that he quietly retired and that they, you know, I mean, what do you make of this? Yeah, and that there was a lack of accountability that he wasn't supposed to transfer and get a new job, but he was, in fact, transferred and got a new job. And, you know, in these cases, what tends to happen is people get promoted up and out in contexts where normal people would have been fired, punished, you know, gotten some kind of rebuke for having let something bad happen on their watch. And the reporting on this shows that this is not the only kind of uh, bad event that has happened under this guy's watch at these facilities. Uh, and yet it, of course, is going to draw suspicion that someone in this position is never suffering any consequences for frankly, very obviously being bad at his job is one responsibility being to keep prisoners safe, at very least alive. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, this, I, I wonder where they're even at with this investigation, mm. if they're still continuing the investigation or if it's just like, oh, yeah, we're kind of looking into that. But they've already kind of looked into as much as they can and they're not really, you know, maybe they'll keep it open or something. But um, it, it really does kind of call into question what their what sort of investigation they did or plan on continuing to do regarding even if it's even if they all believe, yes, Epstein absolutely did it. They should they they need to be investigating the cracks in the system that allowed for what happened to happen, because absolutely. there's plenty of other people who do kill themselves in prisons. And they need to find out how this is going on. What are the, the conditions in the prisons that's causing people to get to that point? Right. All of that needs to be investigated and corrected. Absolutely. Look, there are a lot of things on the docket with respect to prison reform. Uh, and it, you know, it feels a little weird <laughs> to be emphasizing this. But I do think this is important. You know, there are people 
who have observed that after you know an initial media cycle about this stuff, a lot of the coverage that I continue to read about Jeffrey Epstein happens from alternative media sources. There are a million and one podcasts devoted to tracking this. There's a lot of you know conspiracy theorizing. I mean, when there's not mainstream reporting, everything becomes you know turns becomes a realm of conspiracy. But there are people who say the reason that we're not getting more of an investigation and more mainstream coverage of this story is because there are so many famous and important people across the ideological spectrum who are tied to Jeffrey Epstein and who would yep. prefer all of this to go away. Yeah, especially powerful political leaders or family members of powerful political leaders. That seemed to be the sort of the theme in the black book that Jeffrey Epstein had was all of these people were in some sort of position of power in various countries around the world where they could influence legislate and, uh, you know, and, and make certain concessions to certain countries and whatnot. So there's a real theme that's going on there. And yeah, people don't want to investigate. They don't want to get too deep into it because it's not just taking down, I think, a few actors, right? In this situation, mm -hmm. these are really powerful people. Mm -hmm. So that, that makes it more delicate, I suppose, but all the more important for us average people that mm -hmm. want to know the levels of corruption or blackmail even that our leaders might be beholden to. Yeah, yeah. From, um, you know, Prince Andrew to, uh, you know, Jillian Maxwell being at uh, Chelsea Clinton's wedding to pictures with Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. Every, everybody's involved. Yeah. And so with all of the, the grooming, yeah. the grooming discourse being what it is, it is interesting to see these stories not really intersect in a meaningful way. But, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see where this goes and if this is an in, an avenue into a little bit of more insight of what happened on a practical level in that prison um, to bring us to this place where we never actually got the trial that would have shed some light on this whole situation. By design, many of us believe. By mm. design, Brie. Mm. <laughs> we never got it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we will keep you updated on any of the uh, any more of the developments, if there are any around Jeffrey Epstein's case, but certainly Ghislaine Maxwell as well. So, um, but we will have more rising after this. Dr. Anthony Fauci says there's no chance COVID-19 will be defeated. This comes after America's favorite doc had this to say about lockdowns. But lockdown has its consequences. You use lockdowns to get people vaccinated so that when you open up, you won't have a surge of infections because you're dealing with an immunologically naive population to the virus because they've not really been exposed because of the lockdown. The problem is that the vaccines that they've been using are not nearly as effective as the vaccines that are used in the United States, the UK, EU and other so uh, I, I'm assuming he's talking about other countries, maybe mm -hmm. China, um, when he's saying that their vaccine isn't as effective as mm -hmm. the vaccine that we have. I don't know where he's getting that, though. We know that the vaccines here are not stopping the spread. Plenty of people, plenty of people who've had the vaccines have also gotten COVID. So I, I don't know where he's getting this idea that, no, ours are more effective than theirs. Uh, I think that the jury's maybe still out on that. Yeah, and I'm sure some people are going to bristle at the framing of the lockdowns being, uh, it almost sounds coercive to get people totally vaccinated. I mean, the, the, the one of the narratives that was put out at a certain point, and again, there have been many, was that we were going to be able to hit, um, you know, kind of get, get a number of enough people vaccinated so that we did stop the virus, that it wasn't able to spread through the population, that if we were going to get 95% of people vaccinated, it meant that we wouldn't have to keep getting vaccines in perpetuity and living this way. And that now seems to be somewhat of a shift, saying that, of course, we're going to be living with this forever. And there's conversations about different kinds of vaccines being promulgated that could be taken in various ways and make it a lot easier for the pharmaceutical companies to distribute, which, of course, makes a lot of folks who are concerned about the profiteering that can very easily happen in this sector and arguably has already been happening in the sector with respect to the COVID vaccines could be influencing public policy. Oh, yeah. They, well, they love to make money. There's no doubt about that. And now that we got to have endless boosters for what end, you know, uh, so that's, you know, the, of course, they're just making more and more and more money, um, especially since these vaccines are not sterilizing. They're not sterilizing of COVID. They only last in your system to suppress your ability to get infected for a very short period of time. And they found the more doses they give, 
and the more variants there are, even that that time frame shortens even more. I think the fourth dose they're showing that it only gives you um, some protection against infection for a couple of weeks. That's it, mm. maybe even shorter than that. Mm. So unless you're going to vaccinate yourself right when you're about to get infected, and how could you even know that right. when you're going to get infected? <laughs> if everybody knew when, right. then they'd be able to um, hide away, I suppose. And that's, you know, and speaking of hiding away, him saying, well, we use lockdowns in order to get people vaccinated because the people didn't have any exposure to the virus because they were locked down. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. well, there's some circular logic going on there. Maybe some people, we know that there were very, uh, there were large groups of people that were not very vulnerable to COVID. Young people were not very vulnerable to COVID. They would catch it. Most of them wouldn't feel it if they were in their 20s. Maybe they would sniffle a bit. And that was it. Had maybe they gotten some exposure to it, then there wouldn't be that vulnerability, but we locked everybody down. Well, here, here's the thing. I think the important fact that is still relevant is that there were people, including young people and otherwise healthy people, who were used to get COVID and actually die for it. And we had a much higher hospitalization rates and much higher death rates from COVID before the initial vaccines. And I think what is gonna be material to discover is how much that initial boost can continues to give you that protective effect of, okay, you might still catch COVID and get sick, but you're not gonna have the worst effects that we had early in the pre-vaccine days. Or does do you have to keep getting boosters just to keep that effect up? Because if it's the former, if we're all kind of good to, to, to be vulnerable, you know, those of us who are you know, immunocompromised and all of those kinds of things are okay to get it the same way that we get the flu. I think that that prescribes a certain kind of public policy approach and approach for each of us in our individual lives that is different than this other approach, this other world where we actually could go back to that pre-vaccine response to the virus if we don't keep up the, the course of boosters and all of that. So I'm interested to see more scientific clarity, more clarity yeah. from public health officials about what the actual reality of the situation is. Well, the Israelis have great data mm -hmm. and they have been keeping it and they have found that against infection, the vaccines don't work that well. Mm -hmm. uh, it wears off very quickly, but against severe illness, against a severe outcome, it really still only lasts about six to eight months and then it wears mm -hmm. off. And mm -hmm. that's what the data shows. And that's why they keep prescribing boosters for mm -hmm. everybody is because of that data. That's why they were able to get the FDA to approve those booster doses mm. was based on that data. So, um, and then they found now subsequently that each booster seems to have a waning effect that's faster than the mm. previous dose. So they don't know how long they could keep that up and and give that protection. And especially as, and, and they're not sure. I mean, it's in the, in the early days, they found that it wasn't just the variants. A lot of people think that it was the variants that caused the vaccine to lose its efficacy over time. That's not true. I watched the entire FDA, eight hour FDA meeting myself twice. And in that time, they made it very clear that it was both. The vaccine itself wears off, plus the variants made it less effective. So it was a mixture of the two that was causing the vaccine to wear off by the time you hit that six to eight month mark. And that is, and that's just amplified with each variant, especially since we're still using a vaccine based on the original variant, uh, on the original strain of the virus, which, you know, that was kind of one of the promises of the mRNA is that, oh, we can quickly modify it for whatever mm -hmm. uh, virus we've got going on out there. And they haven't been able to do that. But I, I think what's also interesting is Fauci saying that there's just no chance COVID is going to go away. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then I think there needs to be some real serious discussion on how are we going to wh what is going to be the policy moving forward. I've always been of the firm belief from the very beginning, everybody needs to make their own personal decisions based on their own personal assessment of their health, um, that it needs to be an individual choice. If you want to wear a mask, if you want to vaccinate, if you want to shelter in place and hide away, that should be your choice with the help from the government allowing some provisions to allow for that. So a person doesn't have to necessarily go back to work if they're feeling in person with crowds, if they're feeling really vulnerable, that there's maybe some ways to help protect the people that really can show that they really need some extra protection, just like we do for many other groups that have disabilities or need some sort of special accommodations. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, because I just don't think it's sustainable any other way going forward. What do you what think? Do we, what do we know about how the science is evolving about uh, with respect to making new vaccines that are more responsive and don't wane as quickly and are more responsive to the different kinds of variants out there. Because it, it was kind of this um, 
medically kind of a reassuring, kind of exciting thing that they came up with the vaccines as quickly as they did. And we were all celebrating the the commitment of the scientists that were able to do that. And it, it, have we had a continued progress since then, or are we still kind of resting on the laurels of the innovations of, of last year and the year before? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. That's what, you know, I'm asking the same question. Why are we not modifying? Why are we not coming out with something better? I mean, generation one of anything is never the best. Right. I mean, what did we have before Google, for example, Netscape? And, uh, you know, I mean, so every you have to wait for the the modifications, the improvements. And the Cubans actually came out with a really I'm still waiting to see the data. I haven't seen the data on it, mm. but the Cubans came out with a different vaccine that is theoretically better than these vaccines that are based on the spike protein. Mm. They they figured that the spike protein would mutate too quickly. So they based it on a different part of the virus. So we're, it's yet to be seen. That's been it, dis distributed all throughout South America. We, of course, don't get it here in the United States. We still can't get Novavax here in the United States, which is highly, highly suspicious. And that actually only adds to the suspicion of people that a vaccine that is available in Canada, in Europe, in Mexico, practically everywhere, but the United States, and it's a US-based vaccine, and they mm -hmm. won't approve it here in the United States, makes a lot of people think that there is just some big pharma motivation, and Novavax is just not a big enough company to have any real sway in our government, which is mm. true. Um, so, you know, but yeah, they're not coming out with anything. I mean, there, there's some scientists that are developing, but the question is, you know, plenty of scientists are developing new vaccines or new therapies, prophylactics, all of these things. The question is, how much press do they get? How much, how much does the, not just press, but does the government take it seriously? Does the FDA mm. take it seriously? Does the CDC take it seriously? Mm. And we're not seeing that. They just keep relying on what we what we rolled out with right away. Mm. Well, I am curious to see what happens with the Cuba vaccine. I know there's a lot of really amazing innovations that come out of Cuba from a scientific perspective, from a medical perspective. Yeah. Their lung cancer vaccine, now this. Um, We'll see what else. We'll see what else uh, socialized medicine can do. <laughs> Seriously. Um, <laughs> but uh, tomorrow but. on Rising, you should come back because you can catch Ryan Grimm and Emily Tashinsky for the first ever Rising Friday show. That's right. So you can catch that tomorrow. You'll get a fresh show on Friday, live and in person with Ryan and Emily. So that'll be really great. Uh, be sure to like, share and subscribe so you don't miss any of our content as well as those Rising Fridays. Be sure that you get that. Um, so hit that like, share and subscribe button. And if you want to listen to us while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So subscribe and share. Thank you guys so much for watching. And we will be back. Uh, well, you'll see rising tomorrow, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> rising it's Friday. Times. Yes. All right, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Get some rest, Kim. <laughs> <laughs>